Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Imagine you are on your way to a special occasion at a restaurant you've always wanted to try. It's a fancy place that required booking months in advance so you won't be returning soon. When you arrive and see the menu, there are so many items that you would love to order. Then the waiter arrives and shares the daily specials. All of them sound incredible. After careful consideration of the spectacular options, you decide on your order. But this was not an easy decision and many attractive options had to fall by the wayside. But you enjoy your meal. That is, until you see two of the items you didn't order going to another table and lo and behold, they look even better than what you ordered. Afterward, you are disappointed to realize you remember more about what you didn't eat than what you did. My guest on this episode is Dr. Barry Schwartz, a New York Times bestselling author of several books, including The Paradox of Choice. Barry was a psychology professor at Swarthmore College for decades, and he now teaches at UC Berkeley Haas School of Business. I have been a big fan of Barry's work for years, and what he describes in The Paradox of Choice are several well-researched but counterintuitive psychological realities, including the fact that when we have too many options, we tend to hate the process of decision-making, we may make poor decisions, or make no decision at all. I recently learned that my grandpa Ben, who owned a dress shop for over 50 years, understood this truth. Although he didn't have much in terms of conventional education, he was very smart. When a customer entered his shop, he offered only three dresses that he thought would best match the customer. Somehow my grandpa knew that more options would overwhelm and would reduce the chances of a sale. In this episode, Barry will describe a host of fascinating findings that will improve your understanding of the invisible forces that guide our judgment and our decision-making processes. In addition to his books, Barry has had several excellent and well-watched TED Talks that have garnered millions of views, and I recommend those as well. But for now, Join Barry and me as we have a lively, fun, and fascinating discussion about the paradox of choice. Dr. Barry Schwartz, who has asked me to call him Barry, welcome to Super Psyched. Oh, my pleasure, Adam. Great to meet you. Right on. So years ago, I asked an elderly, wise, and successful man to share the single most important criterion for a life well-lived. His answer was simply judgment. It seems as though a great deal of what you've done with your work has been to help people improve their judgment based upon science so that their automatic or irrational tendencies won't get in the way of a life well lived. Is that consistent with how you perceive your own work? To some degree, yes. I think that's a very wise thing that this friend of yours heard, but it's not foolproof. The thing about using your judgment and living in a world where you have to use your judgment is that you will be wrong. Mistakes are inevitable. You can't get it right all the time. The nice thing about following a formula is that you can deceive yourself into thinking you're getting it right all the time, or when you get it wrong, you can blame it on whoever gave you the formula. When you're using your judgment, it's on you, and mistakes are inevitable. 
we say the wrong things to our spouses. We are too strict or too lenient with our kids. We make a huge mistake with a client. We discipline somebody we're supervising too harshly. Our lives are littered with mistakes. The critical thing is if you're paying attention, you realize you made a mistake, you learn from it, and you get a little closer to right the next time. And that's how judgment gets built. So yes, I think that's a good piece of advice. And I do think a lot of my own work has really, I guess you might say, focused in some ways on this maxim. Don't just do something, sit there. I love that. (laughs) You know, (laughs) our first impulse, people talk a lot about going with your gut. Our first impulses have a lot of power, but they're almost always misdirected. And the notion that you can, quote, trust your instincts is a huge mistake. You need to be thoughtful about it. It's good to notice that you have a gut reaction, but then you need to scrutinize it, inspect it, and make sure that it's not leading you astray. And so don't just do something gives you a chance to actually reflect on what your first reaction is to see whether it's one that ought to lead to action. So yes, and as you know, a lot of research on decision-making uses this framework that divides decision-making sort of into two bins. One is the so-called automatic processes, what are called system one, which is exactly what your gut tells you. And it's there like this. Before you even realize that there's a decision to be made, the decision is handed to you. And then there's the more reflective, educated, intellectual, cerebral, effortful, slow process that you can use to modify what the automatic system has given you. And people need to know when the automatic system needs to be scrutinized, when it needs to be modified, how it needs to be modified. And all of that takes time and effort. Yeah. And it sounds like you're speaking about Daniel Kahneman's work on system one, system two thinking. And I love that idea. Just for the listener, system one is that automated, as Barry was saying, that one plus one gut answer for that type of question, which can sadly be applied to more multifaceted ones, much to our own peril. And system two is a far more nuanced question, like a bat and a ball together cost $1.10 and the bat is a dollar more than the ball. How much is the ball? And most people say 10 cents, but it's actually five cents upon further reflection requires. That's right. And by the way, people say that even people who are going to school at Princeton, Harvard, Yale, and MIT, who can obviously do the math. Right. 90%. It's not like they're uneducated or stupid. It's just that the answer is obvious. And the answer is obvious. The problem is that the obvious answer is wrong. Exactly. I'm dying to hear what you'd say about this. A very successful executive said something that I'm not so sure is correct, but I want to hear what you think. I want you to weigh in. He said that a bad decision is better than no decision. What do you think about that? That seems crazy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean... That was my knee jerk, but I'm wondering... uh, You know, look, the thing about statements like that, they're very, they're shocking. So they attract attention. I'm sure if you peeled the layers away, he obviously doesn't think that a catastrophically bad decision is better than no decision. What he probably is trying to communicate is that there's an awful lot of time and effort devoted to making distinctions that don't without differences. Mm -hmm. So an awful lot of the decision making we face is too trivial to be worth our time. Does it really matter which toothpaste you buy? at the grocery store. 
How much time should you devote to choosing a toothpaste? More than five seconds and you're probably wasting time. (laughs) And so if you find yourself caught up agonizing about decisions of that kind, then yes, it is better to make a bad decision because after all, how bad can it be? You have toothpaste. Right. Well, it's better to make a bad decision than no decision because it isn't worth spending time in the toothpaste aisle. So that I agree with. And I think it's not just because it's trivial. I think when students are trying to decide whether to go to Harvard or Yale, torturing yourself about that is a, a huge mistake because even though there may be a right choice, there's almost certainly no way you can know in advance what that choice is because too much is going to depend on accident. Who's your roommate your freshman year? Who's teaching you the introductory psychology class? Nobody is making a college choice based on the things that are actually going to matter. So basically flip a coin. That's right. Heads, you go to Harvard, tails, you go to Yale. End of story. You try to make the best of where you are. And God knows that those places and hundreds like them have enough resources that anyone suitably disposed can have a fabulous education at any one of these places. So it ain't worth the time and the agony. So in that sense, he's right. It is better to make a bad decision than to make no decision. Right. Yeah. And in some cases, we can constipate our lives, so to speak, by not making a decision and things just need to move. Things just need to move, especially <laughs> when the differences among the options are so damn small. Right, right. Especially when it's like that. And if that person chose Harvard instead of Yale, and that person happened to be someone like a Steve Jobs and his Steve Wozniak was going to be at Yale, so much is luck. And he would have missed out on meeting his Steve Wozniak. I just gave a TED Talk in this year's TED, which was all done by remote. And the theme of the talk was about how so much of what happens to us in life is the result of good fortune or bad fortune. And if we appreciated that, we would be a little bit less self-congratulatory about our successes and a little bit more open to the life courses of other people who are just as talented as we are, but maybe not as lucky. So far, it has generated a fair amount of highly hostile Really? People want to claim credit. Yeah. And I'm not saying, you know, I gave a few examples from my own life and I'm not modest. I'm willing to claim credit for the successes that I've had. But I became a psychologist because of the person who happened to be this introductory psychology teacher. I didn't even know what psychology was. I signed up for the class because it fit into my schedule and it met a requirement. And a legendary psychologist named Philip Zimbardo taught me introductory psychology. Change the course of my life. Do I deserve credit for that? That was very fortunate. Yeah, exactly. So taking advantage of good fortune, I'm willing to pat myself on the back, but I didn't make that good fortune. It just fell into my life. So people don't like the idea that a lot of their life course is the result of happy accidents. Rather than think about that expression, happy accident. What an unusual odd expression. An oxymoron. It is in a way, but you know, the word happiness, historically, the meaning of the word happiness was good fortune. It wasn't smiley face. It was good fortune. And you still see in dictionaries that it's a secondary or a tertiary. Happenstance. Happenstance. Yes. So a happy person was a lucky person. 
in taking your idea further about recognizing the luck involved in the trajectory of our quote hero's journey so to speak to borrow from joseph campbell maybe it's better to not take that approach and say wow it was all my own creation but to rather to recognize that we're all in this together and that there were so many people it might create more humility as we act as generous servants to our profession you know i think the main reason for my making this kind of argument is indeed to have people question whether knowing that they deserve their station in life is enough for them to turn a blind eye to other people. Yes, they deserve their station in life. They've earned it. Totally. But there are thousands of other people who also deserve that same station who weren't as fortunate as they were, who didn't have Phil Zimbardo teaching them the introductory psychology class or what have you. And so it really is, you know, I have this notion that we think about what makes a just society as somehow comprising two components. One is that people deserve what they get. And I think pretty much everyone will agree that's a component of a just society. And that's achievable in principle. We can try to root corruption out of various institutions so that people deserve what they get. The other piece is people get what they deserve. That we cannot achieve. There are not enough spots in the Stanford entering class for everyone who deserves to be in it to get in it. And so that is simply an aspiration that can never be realized. And if you appreciate that, then you start looking around and seeing people who didn't get into Stanford maybe a little bit differently. They aren't any worse than you. It's just that when the admissions people flip coins, theirs came out tails. Totally. And that's totally, it is it's essentially a random process among high achieving people because the differences among them are minuscule. They're non-existent. They're invented rather than discovered. So anyway, that was what my, it's not why you had me on your show. It actually is. I do want to know how you think. And given the high number of people you've met over the years, high achieving people who attended Swarthmore College, you have anecdotal evidence or beyond probably even qualitative and quantitative data that supports your idea that the differences between getting into Swarthmore and not are minuscule. Well, that's what I don't know. This is what no school knows. Oh, What about the 500 people who Swarthmore rejected? Would anyone have noticed if they hadn't admitted the students they admitted and instead admitted the next 500? And there was a Harvard Dean of Admissions about 15 years ago who basically said, if we rejected all the people we accepted and we took the next batch, nobody on the faculty would know the difference. Of course, that's true. That's great. Well, I had the incredibly good fortune to attend college and immediately befriend some people who changed the course of my life, including a professor. I had a Tuesdays with Maury type of Maury like person in my life who I contacted twice a month until the day he died. And we were very close. May his memory be a blessing. He was just the greatest guy, Alan Greenberger. But back at Pitzer College, there is a question because it relates to your work on the paradox of choice. Pitzer College was one of the two colleges that I know of, I believe Brown is the other, where a person could take any classes they wanted as long as they fulfilled a major. And that was so attractive to me when I was applying. And yet, to your point in all of your research, I experienced tremendous strife choosing classes because of fear of missing out on the classes I didn't take. And reading your book made me think that having 
perhaps a general ed and fewer choices available as counterintuitive as it sounds might have left me feeling less distressed. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, you're exactly right. <laughs> you're exactly right. What's interesting, years and years ago, I didn't know Pitzer was like this too, but Brown was famously like this on the East Coast. And they had this explosion of student interest because it's incredibly attractive to a 17-year-old. Mm. You can do anything the best. you want. The, you know, the man is not telling you what to do. You get <laughs> to make your own decisions. So everybody was flocking to Brown. And Swarthmore was contemplating making a significant modification of its general education requirements because of how attractive Brown was. So we actually had some people from Brown come down and talk to us. And it turned out that while you could take 23 computer science classes, nobody did. That in fact, if you looked at what people took, they basically, their first year of college was like their fifth year of high school. They took a science class and a literature class and a history class. <laughs> so it was the idea that if they wanted to, they could become total computer science nerds. But mostly they were just taking the next step in a well-trodden path, but they felt so liberated. So they relied on advising and habit to get students through with a decent, well-rounded education, even though there was nothing in the curriculum that required it. And that's mostly what students did. That's amazing. So further on the road of the paradox of choice, one of the things that you say that is so counterintuitive is essentially the more options we have available, perhaps we might actually zero in on the best options, so to speak, but the process will suck and we might actually become crippled in the process and not make any decision at all. Can you describe the paradox? Sure. So the initial research result that led to me to write the book is not a study I did, but a, a graduate student at Stanford named Sheena Iyengar did a study at a fancy, what is it, Droger's, Drager's? Drager's. That's a Drager's. Our local, oh, that's fancy. Yeah, every time they got a new product, they would put it out on a display table and let people sample. And she got the owners of the store to cooperate so that they got this fancy English jam. And they put out 24 flavors on this display table. And anybody who took a sample would get a coupon that would save them a dollar on any jar of jam they bought. And a few days later, they had set up the same display table, but with six rather than 24 flavors of jam. And what she found is that more people were attracted to the display when there were 24 than when there were six, but one-tenth as many people bought jam. I'm absolutely astonishing. And I, like, I can't Ast figure out which jam to buy. And it makes so it's astonishing and yet it makes absolute sense. It you take something that's so counterintuitive and make it entirely intuitive. It is. And she also found in subsequent studies that it's not only that they are less likely to choose, they also are less satisfied with whatever it is they've chosen. So the and implications of Dr. Iyengar's work are are just beyond huge. They are totally huge. They're completely counterintuitive because what an economist would say is, listen, if all you've got is Lee's and Levi's yep. and you're happy choosing yep. between Lee's and Levi's and I introduce Wranglers, <laughs> that doesn't make you worse off. But somebody else who doesn't like Lee's and Levi's gets another option. Right. And then if Yves Saint Laurent comes on the market, that doesn't make 
anybody worse off, but somebody who doesn't like Lee's or Levi's or Wrangler's now has another option. And so the general argument is that anytime you add an option, you make nobody worse off and you make somebody better off. You make nobody worse off because you are perfectly free to ignore the new option. You make somebody better off because if they don't like the existing options, here's another one and then another one. And so this is an argument that it is in our interest. It is it serves our welfare to have as many options available as the market can possibly provide, because more choice improves somebody's life, makes nobody's life worse. That seems perfectly sensible. And it just turns out not to be true. (laughs) Is there actually an ideal number of options? No, you know, there have been a handful of studies that all converged on some number between, say, six and 10. But, you know, there were studies involving choices of pretty trivial things, like, say, pens. I don't think there's a magic number and the number of cars to choose from shouldn't necessarily be the same as the number of pens or the number of (laughs) kinds of genes. The critical thing is we can't assume that more is always better than less. At some point in any domain, you will reach a point where adding options actually makes people worse off, not better off. And if you're not even interested in the welfare of your customers, you're just interested in your own sales, will hurt you, will cost you sales. People will walk out of the store with nothing because you have made the task of choosing so arduous and so unpleasant. And as you put it, fear of missing out. When I wrote the book, that wasn't a thing. I mean, it was sort of a thing. Now it's like a thing everybody knows. All you have to do is say FOMO. The first time a young person (laughs) said that to me, I had no idea what he was talking about. But yeah, the temptation to imagine that one of the alternatives that you rejected would have been better than the one you chose is a recipe for A, paralysis, because you don't want to have that feeling, and B, dissatisfaction. That's absolutely important. You refer to these folks, and I could put myself in this tribe as maximizers it is, as, instead of satisficers, and we'll unpack that in a minute. But maximizers are the ones who just go through the incredible trouble of going through every possible option. And in your words, you mentioned that maximizers on average tend to be more pessimistic, anxious, stress worried, tired, overwhelmed, depressed, regretful, and disappointed, and less content. That is amazing. They're less content, less elated, less excited, less happy. Mm-hmm. Wow. That is it's a big thing. That's a big thing. It is a very big thing. They do better objectively and they feel worse. I keep thinking about Larry David in uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the show, but he can I, focus in on just like one single criterion and it will ruin his day. Yep. And that's where all of his attention goes. And I think that part of the reason he's so popular is he really does exist in all of us to some extent. He does. And and what makes him so funny, of course, is that he'll have a criterion that's just preposterous. (laughs) (laughs) You know, know, it's not like that people object to his having these incredibly high standards. It's it's that who could care how many sesame seeds there are in a baby? Right. Why, Why should it be that? So, and people are really not good at recognizing this in themselves. Although when my book came out and book talks about this distinction, I got lots and lots of emails from people who said, I'm a chronic maximizer. I didn't have a word to attach to it. I didn't know why. I was anxious all the time. I couldn't make decisions. And whenever I did, I was sure I made the wrong decision. And you explained it to me. 
So there may be a lot of people out there like that. And it's kind of the American ethos. Entirely. You You should never settle for good enough. You should always be looking for the best college, the best preschool for your children, the best job, the best marital partner, the best house. Why would you settle in a world of plenty? To settle is to be not be discerning. Why would you not be discerning when the world makes perfection available to you? So saying you're settled, settle is not a neutral descriptor. Right. Settling for Aquafresh toothpaste is not a neutral description of how you choose toothpaste. It's a negative description. I find the best toothpaste, you settle. I'm better than you are. It's hard to shake loose from that kind of evaluative framework within which people judge how decisions should be made. And I think this is a catastrophe because it is driving people crazy. They make great decisions and they feel crappy about them over and over again. And of course, social comparison comes in. I'm wondering if you could unpack the concepts of maximizers versus satisficers. You seem well, to- So a satisficer wants good enough. And that can mean low standards. It can mean modest standards. It can mean very high standards. The important thing is I know what I want. And as soon as I find something that meets those standards, I stop looking. That's brilliant. And if I'm lucky, it'll be the first thing I look at. Maybe not. And how if you're a maximizer, oh, sorry, you're not looking for good, you're looking for the best. Mm-hmm. Now, there's only one way to know you have the best, and that is if you examine everything, which means that you have to do an exhaustive search. You have to look at every private college in the country. It's not enough to look at five or 10 and pick one. You got to look at all of them. How else are you going to know that the one you're choosing is the best? You got to look at all the genes that are being manufactured, probably. 50,000 different alternatives. So the search process is exhaustive. It is exhausting. And of course, you can't in real life do that. No one can look at all the genes that are available. So eventually you say, okay, I I have to cover my ass. Time to buy a pair of genes. And then so you stop and you stop convinced that if you'd only spent five more minutes looking, you'd have found something better. Absolutely. You spend the next three months wearing these jeans, convinced that they were the fourth best jeans you could have bought. If only you... And every time you put them on, you have a cognitive dissonance experience. Exactly. Exactly. Or what an idiot. How could I have bought them? I'm such a schmuck. Exactly. (laughs) And I think people are willing to say that being satisfied with good enough makes sense when you're choosing toothpaste, but not when you're choosing a job or a house or a place to go to college or a romantic partner, and they're wrong. It's the right strategy, even for big decisions. I work oftentimes with folks who are considering who to marry. And you mentioned that Tinder and the world of the dating apps has really added a level of complexity because the pool is so large and people can be vexed by the mere number of possibilities and who they're not dating rather than who they are Mm -hmm. dating. How can a person become perhaps an enlightened satisficer in the dating process, especially considering how important the prospect of marriage is. It is hard work. If you make a commitment that you're going to be looking for good enough generally in all your decisions, it's going to creep you out in the beginning. It's going to feel weird to choose a pair of jeans knowing that maybe you left a better option on the table if only you devoted five more minutes to it. But what happens over time is you get used to it. You discover you're pretty content with your decisions. And all of a sudden, there are all these hours in the day that 
weren't there before. So you get into the rhythm of seeing that you get over your angst that maybe you left something better out and you start to derive the benefits. So it takes practice. And in the short run, it's going to feel uncomfortable. I wouldn't counsel a maximizer who's trying to change to make the first decision as a satisficer be, who am I going to spend the rest of my life? (laughs) Most of us think that when it comes to romantic partners, the trick is to make, is to choose, is to select. And I think that's a mistake. The trick is not in who you select. The trick is in what you do after the selection is made. Great relationships are the product of the active participation of the parties to the relationship. It's not like I made a great choice. It's that I made a good choice and then I did great things with that choice. And the problem he points out with having so many options is it takes work to turn an infatuation into a relationship. Why would you do the work when there are 10,000 alternatives out there? And who knows, maybe in our mind, we have a fantasy that the next bachelor or bachelorette will be no work whatsoever. No work, exactly. It'll be a so piece of cake. It'll be for- all the work. Instead of putting all the work into this person, I'm just going to keep looking until I find the effortlessly perfect person. And then, of course, the result is that you never really get deep enough with anybody to see what really matters in the people you're trying to, you know, to form relationships with. And if the choice set were more limited, you know, you're living in a small town in the pre-internet days and you got 20 people, roughly your age cohort. Well, now you're going to invest time and effort into getting to know them all because you have the time and the pool of possibilities is pretty narrow. And so what you're doing is creating a relationship with all of them. And eventually, presumably, one stands out instead of hoping to discover. And I think that's the secret in my experience to really good relationships is that it's an act of mutual creation rather than an act of mutual discovery. And if people think it's about discovery, they're not going to get it right except by sheer luck. I keep thinking about Fiddler on the Roof and arranged marriage even these days, and how successful arranged marriages are. And I wonder if there's just anything in your research experience that kind of... Well, you know, this, it will be highly speculative. I think there really is some, potentially something about when you limit options, people find a way to make the best of the situation that they're in. If you're looking for reasons to say yes, you can probably find them. If you're looking for reasons to say no, you can certainly find them. (laughs) In a world of unlimited choice, we're mostly looking for reasons to say no. In a world of much more limited choice, we are looking for or trying to invent reasons to say yes. So I don't think it's bizarre to imagine that when the choice pool is limited, people know their job is to turn something that's okay into something that's great. And yet we are the beneficiaries from our ancestors of a negative filter, which basically means that we see the problems and things sooner than we see the good in things. That's just Mm -hmm. how we've been oriented because those who didn't have that a thousand, two thousand plus years ago, they died. They walked up to a saber-toothed tigress, thought a nice kitty cat and no bloodline. But those who feared everything or went to a negative place. So I think it takes a lot of 
cognitive effort to override our tendencies to go negative. I'm not sure it's even possible. In the literature, this is referred to as negativity bias. Mm -hmm. It's not only that we notice the negative more than we notice the positive. It's also that we give much more weight to the negative. For sure. So, so losing $10 hurts worse than winning $10 makes you feel good. And this just seems to be pervasive. And you're right, maybe, that the evolutionary story for this is that if we were not highly attuned to the negative, there would be no bloodline. <laughs> you know? Exactly. But, you know, we're grownups now. We, we don't have to worry about tigers eating nope. us. So we, we ought to be able to take this attribute of ourselves and work to modify it. But most people don't even realize that's what they're doing. To bring this home to the situation we're all living with right at this moment, there's a trade-off in most lives between freedom and security. You trade some amount of freedom to get some security. Somebody is protecting you. Somebody is making sure that the car you drive is safe, that the brakes work. Somebody is making sure that the substances you buy in the grocery store won't poison you. Every somebody who is looking out for your security is also depriving you of an opportunity. That's right. That's such and, a good point. And in an environment in which we take security for granted, which is sort of the way upper middle class types in the United States operate, I don't have to worry about where my next meal is coming from. I don't have to worry that they're going to be armed people with automatic weapons outside my door. It's all about freedom because we take security for granted. Along comes a pandemic, and all of a sudden, the security that we took for granted is threatened, even for the most protected of us, although obviously less for people like us than for frontline types. But you know, there's an enormous amount of uncertainty. The economy may go into a tank that it takes 10 years to recover from. Two million people may die. The list of uncertainties about the future just gets it longer and longer. We can't take security for granted. And it's like, I'm begging for some security. I'll give up some freedom. Right. Security. But interestingly, not everyone sees things in exactly the same way. This ridiculous debate that we're having about wearing masks, because being required to wear a mask deprives you of your freedom to kill other people. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely incredible. Michael Mead, who I had on the show recently, said that the masks paradoxically reveal who you are. I would not have imagined that masking could, could have the symbolic significance that it has come to have. And I don't think that would have been the case were it not sort of being a, a message coming down from the top. Right. But the deeper point is that we don't notice how much our lives depend on a background of security. And so what we want is elbow room. We want freedom. But when that security gets threatened, we realize that maybe freedom is not the most important thing on earth. That's only the most important thing on earth when we can take everything else for granted. It sounds like there's a really difficult equilibrium to strike with regard to freedom and security. And yep. it's just a constant, it's almost like a koan, like the, what is the sound of one hat hand clapping? It's almost as difficult to answer as that. It's very, oh, it's impossible to answer. And people who have children face this with each kid. You have a timid kid. So what you basically want to do with a timid kid is get them to taste the various things that are out there in the world. The world is not that dangerous. 
give it a try soccer, try dance, try riding, learn to ride a bike, whatever. And then you have a daredevil. And now all of a sudden, what you want to do is build a fence around. Ideally, a fence that has that is lined with foam rubber. Sure. So for kid one, it's all about enhancing this kid's sense of freedom. For kid two, it's all about putting your arms around. This is a balance that we have to strike anew with every new situation we're in and with every new person we uh, And as I said at the beginning of our conversation, the thing about using your judgment is that you're going to be wrong. Right. You, you know, you know, you'll make mistakes. Right? You maybe have not made any mistakes raising your children, but I certainly <laughs> make plenty. Of- I would say it's funny. My wife and I are both psychologists and we joke that in spite of how good we are in our own assessment as parents and as professionals, we are constantly making errors. And I I like the idea of we will make errors. It's how we respond to our errors that counts. Mm -hmm. Own up to them. Own up uh, to them. And yeah. Do it better the next time. That's all you can do. It's all we can do. Repair, repair, repair. And I have a mystery question for you. Years ago, I was speaking to an academic about a particular piece of research that I have not been able to unearth. And it was fascinating. And now it is daunting to me because I need to know what it is. It seems that a researcher tried to boil down to a single criterion, the greatest predictor of whether or not a marriage would last or end in divorce. And the finding, as it was conveyed to me, was the word efficiency. As unsexy as that sounds, that was the biggest predictor. That is, how quickly did the couple arrive at decisions due to common values based upon philosophy, religion? upbringing, et cetera, and a host of other crucial domains of marriage. Is that consistent with your sense of predictors of how marriage will turn out? And are you familiar at all with this research that this person was citing? No, I'm not familiar with this research. I'm sorry. The only thing I know that even barely speaks to that is the research that John Gottman has done uh, in Seattle. And he does boil it down to one thing, but I think that the thing is not about efficiency. It's the ratio of positive to negative affective tones in the interaction. When you have a couple talking to one another about something trivial, not about something momentous. Exactly. And how many individual statements carry positive affect versus negative affect? And he says that it can predict the success or failure of a relationship based on a watching two people talk about the weather for a half hour. This is not my field. I've never read the sort of refereed journal articles along these lines, but that's the only thing I've ever heard where, you know, the secret to have the secret of life, <laughs> happiness is, hey kid, the secret of happiness. <laughs> is, is, is which one? I don't know. <laughs> exactly. No, do you imagine that there's somebody somewhere who knows? That would be amazing. In a sentence, but won't because he wants you to suffer. Got it. Got it. That's just a a, yes. And obviously, probably the guy would be delusional because I imagine it's also fairly subjective. But it does intuitively land with me that the idea of being able to come to a decision, are we going to have children or no? Are they going to go to private school or public school? Will we live in the city? Will we live in the burbs? And having more harmony around those decision making factors that constitute a life rather than being perhaps in some ways bottlenecked all the time. No, no, I think that's right. But this raises lots of, to me, interesting and mysterious issues. My wife and I got to know each other when we were very young. Yeah. And we essentially were unformed people when our relationship started. 
And the result is that we, as we became formed, the presence of the other had an enormous influence on what we were formed as. That's very different from the way relationships tend to occur nowadays, where serious relationships don't start, especially among educated people. They don't start until people are in their mid to late 20s. And by then, you're a fully formed person. And what that means is that you're probably going to be less malleable as a 28-year-old than I was as a 15-year-old, which means that the points of you know, contention mm. are going to be harder to overcome. Yeah. Because you've got rigidity on both sides instead of complete malleability. So it seemed to me like my wife and I basically lived a conflict-free life, aside from occasional spats. And it was probably to a large degree true, because neither one of us had important commitments that might be a source of conflict until we were forming them together as a couple. But that's not the way these things happen nowadays. Sure. So how do you resolve significant disputes? I think it's a bad idea in general for people to think that to utter the sentence, well, on this, there is no compromise. There can't be a this about which there is no compromise. There has to be room for discussion of pretty much everything. Pretty much everything needs to be on the table. And you find a way of reconciling occasionally opposing views. It doesn't always work. It can't always work. But there are bound to be conflicts as you try to both create and then sustain relationship among serious people. Serious people have serious commitments in life. There are bound to be conflict. It's not a good idea to talk about none of these things before you make a commitment. It's like, There are people who make empty commitments. They are completely committed to the other person before they even barely know the other person. What are you committing yourself to in the absence of deep knowledge of what the other person is like and cares about? So that sometimes happens. You know, you're committed to the idea of being in a committed relationship rather than to the actual relationship. In addition to that idea, which I totally agree with, there seems to be the lack of assessment in the dating phase at times. Like the limerence, the falling in love is just so delicious that people fail to ask the hard questions or recognize the things that are right in front of their nose in terms of there's a delta between us with regard to a host of values and and they live under the belief that we will find a way to work it out. And and sometimes that's actually not really going to work. No, it isn't. And this also, you can see why people would be attracted to the Tinder model, Mm -hmm. where you just hope that you won't have to struggle to make two into one, because eventually you will find the perfect one where there's no struggle. And I think this is a fool's errand, but (laughs) I can also see why people think that the solution to the hard work of relationship establishment maintenance is to just keep looking until you find the effortlessly successful one. So let's say you're meeting up, just a little bit of a pivot here, you're meeting up for coffee, a maximizer friend of yours is just miserable as always, and says, I need the playbook to become a satisficer. How do I become a satisficer? What would you say to that? How does a person in a maximizing stance become a satisficer? Right, so again, I've never actually 
tried to do this and collected data. My sense is the following. Nobody is a maximizer about everything. That is to say, when you're buying postage stamps, you probably say, I want a book of postage stamps. That's what I say. You don't say, let me see all the kinds of books <laughs> you have. Give me a book of stamps so you know how to do it. There are certain parts of your life where you know how to settle for good enough. All you care about in stamps is that they have the right dollar value that your letter will actually go where it's headed. So you look at the parts of your life where you're already doing, which means you know how to do it. Exactly. We already have the algorithm. You've already got the skills, and then you just take these skills and transfer them to a new domain. That makes perfect sense. It is easier to transfer skills, a repertoire you already have, to a new domain than it is to learn something brand new. Now, again, as I said earlier, I don't think you should go from choosing stamps to choosing a romantic partner, not in one step. But, you know, from choosing stamps to choosing toothpaste, that doesn't seem like such a gigantic leap. Right. You know, from choosing toothpaste to choosing a loaf of bread, that doesn't seem like a gigantic leap. And so you make these moves to increasingly consequential decisions with a good enough is good enough orientation. And you discover it's not that hard. That's really good. It is really not that hard. And you don't spend your time looking at the menu at this restaurant, thinking about the menus at the restaurants you weren't at. It's so interesting. A person asked me, I was giving a presentation on positive psychology and talking about rejuvenating activities versus non-rejuvenating activities that people engage in during their off time. And somebody asked me, like, what do I do about all of the possibility of choices. And my advice was to choose one that would rejuvenate and to merge with it entirely and to in any way, shape or form possible, just kind of be so with what you're doing that you mm -hmm. even forget that there are other options. To your point, I think you had a New Yorker cartoon where somebody's on an island thinking, oh my gosh, it's August and I'm on an island. And I could have had all this great parking in Manhattan yes. and what a <laughs> schmuck I am for being here. And Decision, I believe, shares etymological roots with incision or cutting off other options. And it's painful. But what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think this is a sort of being in the moment, being absorbed by the moment. This is the Csikszentmihalyi idea mm. of flow. It's also something I gather Buddhist about, and I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to Buddhist principles. So I think it's very much being mindful of where you are is almost always a very good idea. And the more mindful you are of where you are, the less space there will be for you to be thinking about where you could be. So good. And that's probably a good thing, but I don't want to be sort of mechanically enthusiastic about it because you do have, you know, sometimes we make mistakes. We've seen this. And if you're so focused on where you are, it's going to be hard for you to figure out that you've made a mistake. Part of what helps you see you've made a mistake is that you notice that there's a, another path you could have been on that would have been more satisfying in whatever way might be relevant. Having that kind of tunnel vision will certainly stop you from fear of missing out, but it may not stop you from actually missing out. So there needs to be a certain amount of monitoring of what else is going on in the world to help you catch mistakes and and correct them. 
for an afternoon pursuit on a Saturday or a Sunday, perhaps if you're not, a person's not working, I think that this comes less into play so that mm -hmm. if I'm on a hike and I'm not at a cafe, I'm not thinking about all the co yeah. coffee I'm not drinking. I'm thinking about the hike. No, I completely agree. For circumscribed bouts of okay, time. Okay, I see. Absolutely. It's a good idea, for example, to leave your phone in the trunk of the car. So people don't do that. It's like, suppose my dear friend gets into a serious car accident. They won't be able to reach me. Well, you've been alive for 40 years. How many calls like that? <laughs> what? None? <laughs> and I say this as I'm guilty of it. Sure. No, totally. I am too. My wife and I went away once for a weekend. And understand, we're old enough that the idea that you are always reachable was not a part of life. For most of my formative years, <laughs> people were not always reachable. Right. You didn't carry your connection to the world in your hip pocket. But nowadays, people are always reachable. So we, we went up to um, Marin County for a weekend. And the place we were in had the phone service was out and the cell phone reception was non-existent. So we're 45 minutes away from home. We got into a complete panic because if something terrible happened, our family would not be able to reach us. And I'm telling you, we really went nuts. We screamed at the landlords and the BNB, you got to do something about this. We can't. It's like, I'm not waiting for a call from the Nobel Committee. <laughs> it's going to be okay in all it's likelihood. Gonna okay, it's going to be okay. The standard of being perpetually in reach had just permeated us and we couldn't be in the moment. We could be in the moment if we knew that if something terrible happened, people would be able to find us. Right. We didn't know that. All we could think about was that something terrible would happen and nobody would be able to find us. So it ain't easy to leave your cell phone in the trunk of the car, but it's probably not a bad piece of advice if you want to go on a hike and be thinking about nothing except what you're experiencing on the hike. That's such a good point. And I love the work of Cheek Sent Me High. The idea of flow and really merging with what is going on presently is such a great mindful approach. The disturbing artifact in the literature I found was that a larger number than expected, not a huge number, but a larger number than expected of people during sex are on their cell phone in some way, no. shape or form. Yeah, it's, it's out there and it blew my mind. And I think about Winnie the Pooh as being the exemplar of really merging with a great thing. He looks forward to his honey. When he's eating his honey, he's thinking about nothing but his honey. And after his honey, he remembers his honey. And I think that is just really a great way of living, if at all possible. There's a cartoon that I sometimes show when I'm giving talks. It's a three panel cartoon, New Yorker cartoon with no caption. In the first panel, the guy is sitting in his office at his computer, and there's a thought bubble of him on the golf course. In the second panel, he's playing golf, and there's a thought bubble of him in bed with a beautiful woman. In the third panel, he's in bed with a beautiful woman, and there's a thought bubble of him in his office at his computer. Oh, that's perfect. That is just perfect. <laughs> And I thought I knew where that was going, but I was wrong. That is so good. And you know, the sad truth is that whatever it is we're doing, we can always be doing something else. And if you spend all of your life thinking about what else you could be doing, you're not going to get much satisfaction out of what you are actually doing. And it takes, I think, a lot of training, <laughs> self-discipline, not to be thinking about work when you're having sex or sex when you're playing golf. 
So my final question, if I could just leave on this one, if yeah. you had the magical abilities to confer on all the world, one skill, one awareness, whatever it might be that might imp just something that you've gleaned from the research that could really help humanity, both on the micro and on macro levels, what would it be? And what effect do you think it would have on the individual and society at large? Well, I don't think this is the universal principle that everyone would come up with. But from my own work, I would say the single most important lesson I have to offer is that good enough is almost always good enough. And if you understand that to be true, it will change how you search in the world. It will change how you experience the results of your decisions in the world. It will make the decision-making process less angsty and it will make your satisfaction with the decisions you make much higher. And let me just say, it will also reduce the enormous amount of waste of resources that goes into creating a world so that everyone can find the best. If people didn't need to find the best, there wouldn't be 400 different kinds of toothpaste on the market. It's incredibly wasteful to create this diverse array of things and experiences so that everybody on earth can find the best. If what we're trying to do is live a good enough life, a lot of resources that are currently just going up in smoke and heating up the planet could be devoted to other things, could be redistributed to people who have too few choices. I'm be more than happy to give up some of the options I have so that somebody who is facing a life with virtually no options has some. So I think it is potentially this simple principle, good enough is almost always good enough, has big implications for individuals and maybe even for the structure of social institutions, if you could somehow sort of put it into the water supply. Barry, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom. I'm so grateful to you. It really has been a pleasure and a pleasure to discover that we both long for the pastrami sandwiches of the East Coast. We which <laughs> preceded this conversation, but it was a lead up, an important lead up. But I'm quite happy with a good enough pastrami sandwich. <laughs> this is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.